0: And welcome to 10x9, 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And this is the 10x9 podcast. I'm Paul Dorn, and 10 years ago in 2011, Podrigo Tuma and I started 10x9 in the Black Box in Belfast, and we love it. All our events are now on Zoom, so you can join in wherever you are in the world. You can find all our upcoming events and all the things you need to know about us and some things you don't at our website, 10by9.com. Now, there are three stories in this podcast for you, plus a bonus at the end. More on that shortly. The stories were recorded at an evening in the virtual Flowerfield Arts Centre in virtual Limavati, and the theme was In Sickness and in Health. Here's how Podrig and I introduced the evening.
1: Anyway, it is great that you're here. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We are thrilled to have a 10 by 9 tonight in partnership with Roe Valley. And our theme is in sickness and health. And um, it's great. Thanks very much to the magnificent people at Roe Valley Arts Centre.
0: Yes, you are all in Limavady. You may not realise it, but you're all in a virtual Limavadi And I'm sure a lot of you, especially overseas, are going... Where the hell is Limavady? Well, Limavati is a um, medium-sized town by our standards. It's about halfway between Derry and Coleraine. Now that probably doesn't say a lot to uh, most of you. So I was trying to <laughs> trying to find famous people from Limavady, and I'm afraid I failed. Um, and then I was trying to find. You know major incidents that have happened at Limavady, and the only thing I could find, and I do apologise to anyone from Limavady, was that Richard Branson uh, and his balloon touched down here when they made the transatlantic flight. So, I'm afraid that's as much as I can say about Limavady. My connection to Limavady. Here's a little story. Um, I don't know if this is the same everywhere, but in Ireland, there's always a Every town or little area has its great beauty. So, uh, you know, whether it's Rose from Tralee or, or Mary from Dunlow or Molly Malone in Dublin, all that sort of stuff. Actually, I don't know. What was the Rose of Tralee's name? It wasn't Rose. But anyway, um, the one for the Rove Valley where Valley is situated is Finvola. Now, I saw this on Wikipedia and I thought, I know Finvola because when I was in primary school, our class was getting ready to do a poem. Uh, you know, I can't remember, like, we'd all go on the stage and we all do this poem. we all go, "'Twas the death of Finvola, the gem of the row," as if we'd all come from the home counties. And they needed a man to play the prince who came from overseas, uh, Scotland. And the upside was you got to be the leading man. You didn't have any lines, but, you know, you were on the stage. The downside, you had to wear a kilt. And so you had to balance that, that kind of dangerous dynamic of a bit of fame versus getting teased mercilessly by your classmates. Needless to say, I went for the leading man option. So <laughs> I, I can't even remember if the character had a name, but he came from the Isle of Islay, took the beautiful Finvola, the gem of the row, off to Islay, the family banshee... Did its thing and Finvola, as always seems to be the case with these glamorous women, of course she dies, and her husband is so so upset that he refuses to send her body back to the rural Valley until her family sends a delegation and then he he agrees for her to return. So now you know all about Finvola, the gem of the row. Okay, on with the proper storytellers. They are all first timers at the ten by nine microphone. First up. Here's Jacqueline Gale, who told this from her home in West Yorkshire.
2: So I had my first exhibition in 2010, um, but don't worry, I'm not some highfalutin artist you've never heard of. It was a local village art fair and it was in something called Stellation. So that's right, um, installation in the back of a van in a car park. So my exhibition was called Knitting World and it was made up of three pieces of work. On the Rocks, which is a beach in a suitcase, Domestic Bliss, which was a living room on a wooden tea tray, and that sinking feeling, a man alone in a fish tank surrounded by mirrors over his head in water. Don't ask. I've always loved making things, and I'd made these three tableaux based on knitting patterns from the 1960s and 70s. But to tell you how I came to make them, I have to go back in time to the 1970s. We lived around the corner from my granny until I was 10 and I used to stay with her at weekends and Saturday mornings at Granny's were famous for hot pancakes and fresh wheaten bread. The bread would wake me and I never ever had to be cold from my bed to get up. And the heat of the pancake melted the butter and the strawberry jam so that it ran in a really slippery river down my fingers and I've never tasted anything like it to this day. I don't really remember how I started staying there at weekends because we only lived around the corner, but I know I was there every weekend from I was no age. I would help her with the housework. I don't think she needed any help at the housework then anyway, but I was allowed to help with dusting the ornaments. But of course I wasn't allowed to dust the big dogs until I was about 11, but I could clean the brass candlesticks and the wee brass bells. I really loved her gorgeous purple carpet sweeper, but I was always annoyed when I bashed it against the door or the edge of the sofa, and it would spill its dusty guts onto the clean carpet. You could never get all that dust and fluff lifted again. And Granny kept the sweeper even when she got herself a Hoover. For the scullery floor, she said, though I suspect she kept it for me. After the housework, it was my time with her, and growing up in a big family, being at Granny's was my place for peace to read and make things. She always bought me the Bunty comic, and so she had cut out the dolls and the clothes from the back page, and I'd glue the doll onto a cereal packet she'd saved for me. But what I remember most clearly is that we made Dolls House furniture. We made a bath out of a margarine tub, and yes, sticky-back plastic. She was quite the craftswoman, my Granny. And we made chairs and a sofa out of the bigger cook's matchboxes and we sewed them into bits of material um, with a special stitch that she taught me called a ladder stitch but my fondest memory is making a television set out of a small matchbox with a square cut out of one side for the pictures and then we'd cut the pictures of programs out of the radio times and keep them inside the matchbox for a change of show for the dolls I can't tell you how much I loved changing the TV programme for those dolls, but I learned so much. I learned how to cut from a pattern and sew felt together to make dolls, teddy bears, a dog and for some unknown reason a crab. I made clowns from old pyjamas and pom-poms, tie-dyed my trousers and t-shirts, And up until I was 12, I went to bed every Saturday night after my bath with rags in my hair for my famous ringlets, ready for mass in the morning. I was the local Shirley Temple. Boy, was I glad when that rigmarole stopped. (laughs) (laughs) I probably stayed with her every weekend until I was about 14, when hockey and the blue light discos at the scout hall drew me away. Granny had her first heart attack when I was 17, and I volunteered to go and live with her when she was discharged from hospital. At the time, I was in Upper Sixth, and my school was about a mile from her house, so I could get to school easily and have peace to revise for my A-levels. She really wasn't well, and her bed was moved into the living room. I'd get up at six to light the fire and warm the room for her to get up. Then I'd get myself ready for school in the freezing bathroom before making porridge while she got washed and dressed. Then both of us dressed, we'd eat the porridge and drink the tea. I'd run home on my lunch break to see to the fire, get her lunch and make sure she was okay. And then I'd run back in time for whatever lesson I had. I had such great teachers and I was never told off if I was a bit late. I was only supposed to stay for a few months until she was back on her feet but I stayed on living with her on and off until I was about 20. Soon enough, she was looking after me, cooking, making bread and scones, hot chocolate on winter nights, pancakes for my friends who came over to revise, and a warm welcome for a lovely boyfriend who, even though she was worried sick and prayed for me, um, every time I went out on his motorbike, she always made him very welcome. So I wonder where he is now. Eventually, after a few false starts, I left for university in Leeds. I went home every holiday, but it was hard seeing how old and frail she was getting. To get a cheap flight in those days, you had to phone Capital Airlines at six in the morning on the day before you wanted to fly. We didn't have a phone box in our student house, so I had to get up before six and stand in the bitter cold in the phone box. If I managed to get a flight, I'd ring Granny and tell her I'd see her tomorrow, and then she'd tell everyone else. In my second year, I tried for five days in a row to get a flight home for Christmas. When I finally landed, she was sitting in the armchair by the window looking out for me. When I saw her, I just knelt down in front of her and took her hands in mine. I've been waiting for you, she said. I'm so glad you're home. She was a bad colour and went into hospital two days later where she only stayed for a week. The night she died I slept in her bed and I cried and cried. But fast forward to 20 years later and I still couldn't say her name without crying and I thought to myself, pull yourself together woman, get a grip. At that time I just happened to be doing a photography course with a woman who was technically brilliant, but was really much more interested in storytelling through photography. And I could see that maybe this was a way that I could express something about losing my granny. And um, I booked some one to one time with her and she helped me to make some photograms of items that connected me to her. So that's when you put some objects on some photograph paper and develop it. So you get a very stark black image and white outlines and while I was doing this I was also gathering up her letters and old photos and I happened to say in passing one day to a friend of mine who was a puppet maker and theatre maker that what I really needed to do to honour my granny was make a doll's house but what did a 43 year old want with a doll's house but of course my lovely friend Liz heard this in the way that only she can and she encouraged me to do it and agreed to help me make whatever comes out. So it turns out I worked on it for six months and I made an artwork called Knitting World. So remember that vanstallation? Well, after all the glory of the day, the chatter in the cafes, the newspaper photographs, an invite from the council to display it in the library over Christmas and collecting other people's knitting stories in a lovely little notebook, I drove Mick's van back to the workshop. As I turned off the main road, onto the lane, down to the mill, I pulled over. I knew what I needed, and i just let go of all the sadness I'd been holding on to for so long. Hot tears and howling, and as Granny would have said, the snotters were tripping me. I felt as if everything I'd ever made was in the back of the van. And here I was, calling out her name, thanking her for everything she had taught me and telling her how much I love her, my dear, beloved Granny Toner.
0: Thank you so much, Jacqueline. What a wonderful tribute to a wonderful Granny. You can see a few examples of Jacqueline's art on our YouTube channel, where you can watch all the stories from the event, in fact, all of our Zoom events, in bite-sized chunks. Now, up next is another first-timer. It's Alan Thompson.
3: If the police had seen that smelly, semi-naked man in my car, I would have spent the night in the cell, but I'll get to that. It had been a tough week of nights at work and now finally the weekend was here. The three of us had waited outside the off-licence for it to open at 11am and bought our chosen poison. I took a bottle of Bacardi, six tins of Strongbow and six tins of Guinness to make snake bites. Phil preferred a bottle of gin and was hoping to scrounge some of my snake bites and Kerry was very sophisticated with a bottle of black Tower. It was going to be a classy night. Phil and I had formed a very tight friendship since meeting the year before. We had allowed Carrie in as an honorary member and not only because she was the only one with her own house. Carrie had invited us to her house to stay over for the weekend and although we hadn't slept since yesterday, we were not going to let that get in the way of a day's drinking. We bought some food, threw our bags in Carrie's spare room, and had an early lunch, with drinks, of course. Today, it would be called brunch, but that was 1985, and brunch hadn't been invented yet. I want to know what love is, by foreigner, was at the top of the charts. The miners' strike was in full flow, EastEnders' Ender's first episode had just aired and leg warmers were all the rage. We drank, slept where we sat and drank more until late in the evening when I looked out of the window and saw Stevie arriving in his car. I remarked that Stevie had arrived and wondered if he lived on this street as well. Kerry got into a tizzy as she must have been expecting him but hadn't told us. And because mobile phones had only been invented five minutes ago, he hadn't been able to give her any warning that he would be arriving. Stevie worked in our company on a different shift and there was no issue in him paying Kerry a visit, except he was engaged to marry Deirdre. And I don't think she knew he was visiting us. Well, Kerry. Kerry lovely as always asked us to give her the house for the evening. We couldn't really argue as it was her house. And Stevie was now sitting on the sofa beside her, although more turned towards each other and leaning in, gazing into each other's eyes, engaging in small talk and laughing at the same not funny jokes. So Phil and I made our exit with nowhere to go and maybe not even a bed for the night. I had the key to my pristine Ford Sierra XR4i which was a very fine car in its day, and we agreed that we needed some more drink, as you would in the circumstances. So we headed into Belfast city centre and parked up near a couple of pubs that we liked. Drinking and driving is a very serious offence and should never be done, but it was less frowned upon then. I was drunk in my early twenties and lacking the sense I was born with. As the evening progressed, we visited more pubs until closing time at 11.30 p.m. Although we hadn't slept in 30 hours, I needed to see Mary. Mary Davidson was a nurse I had met at work and we had dated on a couple of occasions, but it was nothing serious for her as she already had a boyfriend back at home in County Monaghan. I was more interested than she was. Mary shared a house with two other nurses in the student area of Belfast, near the hospital. And in my wisdom, I thought that telling Mary tonight that I was in love with her was one of my better plans. And it would free her from the uncertainty of leaving her boyfriend from back home and taking up with me. Phil and I got into the car and traveled to the residential street that Mary lived on. It was a very narrow street of red brick pre-war terraced houses with cars parked on both sides of the street, making only a single lane possible down the middle. I stopped outside Mary's house and abandoned the car, with Phil sleeping on the passenger seat. I went to her door and knocked quietly, so as not to waken anyone on the street. No response. I knocked harder and still no response. Then I shouted in a loud whisper, Mary, Mary! An upstairs window opened two doors away and Rosemary, one of her housemates, put her head out and told me that Mary was asleep. Instead of walking along the pavement to the correct house, I clambered over the small garden walls to below Rosemary and tried to negotiate with her to waken Mary as I had something very important to tell her. Rosemary explained that they were on an early shift the next morning and she needed me to go away. I begged, but there was no shifting her. I walked out onto the footpath and began shouting, Mary, Mary, come to the front door. I need to talk to you. I have something important to tell you. When nothing happened, I shouted, Mary, I love you. I swear, leave him and be with me. I love you. Rosemary opened the window again and told me to go home. I ignored her this time and continued shouting for Mary, but she never made an appearance and Rosemary broke the news that Mary didn't want to see me again, ever. I didn't believe her, but since some of the lights in the other houses on the street came on and windows were being opened, I decided that maybe it would be best left until tomorrow to explain to Mary how much I loved her. I got back into the car and carefully drove through the maze of streets, trying to find my way back to Kerry's house. We drove past the police station, and I stopped at the red traffic lights at the end of the road. There was very little traffic. I turned and looked t- at Phil. You okay, mate? I asked. He didn't respond or move. He just opened his mouth and threw it up into the V shape, created. <laughs> <laughs> so into the v-shape created by his crotch on the seat of my pride and joy he still didn't move i got out of the driver's seat and opened his door took his seat belt off and prized him out of his seat the v of vomit now spread to the rest of the seat and i scooped it off with my one hand i'm sorry <laughs> because my other hand was holding him up. He became aware of his surroundings at that moment and realised that he had a crotch of vomit. He dropped his jeans in an effort to get as far away from them as possible. I set him on the curb, removing his shoes and jeans, leaving him to travel home in his pants. I loved that car and I knew it would never be the same again, but I loved Phil more. So taking care of him, using my bare hands to clean his minor indiscretion, did not faze me. And I placed him back on the sodden seat before any police cars returning to the police station passed us. When we got back to Kerry's, the house was in darkness. Stevie's car was still on the street. I used the key she had given me and helped fill up to the bedroom. I was afraid to put on the light in case I woke Stevie, but then I realised he must have been staying in the other room. I was never one for making or keeping friends, but Phil and I had something very special, which I cherished for the many years we were close. Life and circumstances got in the way and we no longer have any contact, which saddens me greatly, all the more so because there was no fallout, no crossword or end date. I never saw Mary again, Stevie married Deirdre, my car never smelled the same, Carrie died.
0: Oh, what a stunning end to a wonderful story. Thank you so much, Alan. We love the variety of stories that the thing brings out. Brilliant. And why does the consumption of alcohol always make the declaration of love seem like a good idea? Bizarre. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be. But we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated. If you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10x9.com. That is story at 10x9.com. Equally, you can just sit back and support us by turning up, by listening and enjoying. Don't forget, there's news of Podrick's latest project coming up directly after the podcast, so don't switch off too early. And now, here's our third story. Another newcomer to 10x9, Susan Schaefer, told this fantastic story from her home in Minneapolis, USA.
4: At the beginning of February 1972, I got an unexpected call from my childhood friend and secret crush, Murray. I was 21, Being the month of St. Valentine, my heart skipped a beat. If Mary knew I had held the torch for him since childhood, he'd never let on before. Mostly he'd remained a pal, always looking out for his younger neighbor. Now it was well known in our circle that Mary had just landed a week long gig as an usher, on Philadelphia's Mike Douglas TV show. Purring into the phone, Mary asked, hey, do you want one of my passes to the Douglas show? For Mike Douglas, why would I? I was incredulous. Douglas hosted guests of my parents' generation from a small basement studio in the heart of Center City. The show was old fashioned and Douglas was a charming conservative at best and square as a pizza box at worst. Much as I still hankered for my handsome friend, Murray, I dismissed the invitation, wanting to return to my graduate studies and wondering why he was inviting me at all. Uh, I think you'll want this pass. With his movie star good looks, and long lean frame. Mary could sometimes be a bit arrogant. The silence on my end prompted an unusual blurt from his. For Christ's sake, John Lennon and Yoko Ono are co-hosting the whole week. Now my adamant love of John Lennon was pretty well known. How would I miss the news that John Lennon and Yoko Ono were co-hosting the Mike Douglas Show. I can tell you that got me down from my high horse pretty quick. Offering some gushy, girly apology, I thanked him profusely for the offer. And since I lived in Center City, Mary suggested we meet near my apartment for the handoff of that pass. The day came. And I dressed appropriately Brit hip in my brown houndstooth mini skirt matching dark cocoa tights and cashmere sweater set off by brown platform boots. The ensemble seemed spray painted on my Twiggy frame and my embroidered Afghan sheepskin coat completed the look. The truth is. I hardly remember anything about the show. I was so excited. It was the day after the famous Chuck Berry appearance. The local and national news media had made a great fuss about John Lennon fulfilling his lifetime dream of playing with his musical inspiration and idol Chuck Berry. It made me feel kind of good to know my idol had wanted to meet his idol. It was a Thursday. I remember it because it was my day off from the book department gig as a junior buyer and cashier in Philadelphia's iconic Wanamaker's department store. Now the guest pass seat was near the back, but the studio was so intimate we could just about reach out and touch the stage from any seat in the house. Mary had selected an aisle seat, so if John or Yoko came into the audience, there was a chance I could reach out and touch them. But there was another reason. Since the previous December, I had come down with a rare disability. It was diagnosed as myasthenia gravis a debilitating neuromuscular disorder that not much was known about. My left foot dragged and my hands would stop working. Sometimes I collapsed. The doctors had placed me on a brand new and frightening regime of drugs called cholinesterase inhibitors. I was a guinea pig of sorts the doctors were still working on the drugs and the dosages, and my life had been turned upside down. Murray was being very mindful of his childhood friend. After the show was over, he fetched me around the stage door, insisting, Now wait here. And I did. After a time that mid February east coast bone numbing cold triggered my new malady. I had waited for what seemed like hours and finally turned disappointed to walk the 10 short blocks back to my apartment. When a voice resonated behind my shoulder say love are you Susan. I turned almost collapsing and a hand reached out to steady me. There were John and Yoko, all big smiles and alone. I nodded with such enthusiasm, I must have looked like one of those bobble-headed dolls. You got a good mate there in Mary, you know. John's Liverpudlian accent drove the frost from my bones. Yoko added in her high Japanese lilt, he was very concerned that we meet you. And at that, she extended her hand, which I shook as ardently as a jiffy popcorn on a gas stove. Mary must have played the sympathy card because they asked me all about my Myasthenia gravis. And I answered as best I could. Definitely in shock. Barely registering that I was standing with two people whose art and romance I idolized. Yoko seemed truly pleased to learn I owned both her and John's poetry books, which I happened to have here, the originals. Grapefruit by Yoko Ono and In his own right by John Lennon. She nodded knowingly when I explained, well, I was an English lit grad student majoring in modern fiction and poetry. You know, even while I stood with them, they holding hands, it was like a dream. They were relaxed, natural and kind. Yeah. I remember the feeling more like a muscle memory than our words and our conversation. 30 years later, in 2001, my late husband, Martine, who knew this story well, bought tickets for my 51st birthday to see Yoko and Sean perform at Minneapolis's Walker Art Center. Martine encouraged me to bring that book along just in case. It turns out, as an extra surprise, Martine had arranged a special backstage pass to meet Yoko Ono. Once again, I found myself alone in the company of Yoko, and when I offered her my book to sign, Mentioning the Mike Douglas show 30 years before she smiled that enigmatic smile and said she perfectly remembered that young girl in the miniskirt with the strange illness. She signed my book and kissed my cheek.
0: Uh, thanks so much, Susan. What a wonderful story and how lovely to know that John and Yoko were as nice as we'd hoped. I'd like to add that this is being recorded and published on Valentine's Day, which would have been Susan and Martine's 25th wedding anniversary. So, sending best wishes from 10 by 9 to you, Susan. And that is pretty much it for this podcast. Don't forget the little bonus coming up from Podrick. If you'd like to tell a story at 10x9, go along to the guidelines page on our website, 10x9.com, and get in touch. We are always, and I cannot stress this enough, always looking for storytellers. Also, I'm going to ask a small favour. If you enjoy this podcast, could you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your fix of 10 by 9 and give us a rating and maybe even a short review. It helps get us noticed. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Dorn, so it's all my fault. I'll be back with another podcast soon, but for now, bye-bye.
1: Welcome to the Corimila podcast, conversations about politics, history, art, and theology. My name is Padrigo Tuma, and I'm the former leader of the Corimila community, Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation community. Corimila has been doing public conversations about belonging for decades, but this is our first podcast. Normally, the Corimila Centre up on the north coast of Ireland is filled with people doing group work and talking about their differences. It could be uh, youth groups or youth leaders or teachers or community and faith leaders enjoying great meals, lighting fires and doing the difficult work of togetherness in a spirit of temporary community and understanding. But um, Covid, so like you, we're all working from home and instead of us all being together, we're bringing conversations to you. We're delighted to do this and for this year, which is a heavy year, a year of pandemic, but also the year of the centenary of the partition of Ireland, and it's the first year of Brexit, I'll be in conversation with 12 guests about Irishness and Britishness. And we'll be looking at this through the lenses of politics and history, art and theology. When he said that, he was merely echoing de Valera. Well, first of all, I have great faith. I mean, I, I do believe that there is a loving God out there. And I do believe that I'm answering. <laughs> yeah, that. it's a lovely thing to sort of discover writing poetry, or maybe I should say rediscover writing poetry and in some way. In all of this we want to ask questions about how to be together with each other, doing something called peace and democracy and society well, in a way where we can all flourish, in a way where more justice can happen. Not everyone's interested in religion, politics, art or history, but here everyone's affected by them. So we take these things very seriously in these conversations. These conversations are not the final word, just a starter. Some of them are very funny, some are very moving, some are enraging, some challenging. They're all invitations to you, the listener. If you're interested in joining the conversation, we've got discussion questions that we'll offer you every week all linked on the website, carimela.org forward slash podcast, or you can download them from the show notes as well. You can engage with those questions alone, or you might want to engage with them with people in your house or in your family or friends on Zoom. You might want to just write about them or start off some kind of discussion group. However you want to engage with them, we're delighted to offer these to you. We can do this because of the generosity of our funders. The Henry Luce Foundation, the Fund for Reconciliation from the Irish Government, the Community Relations Council in Northern Ireland, and those friends of Corrymeela who give monthly or annually to support the work. We are thrilled to offer you these conversations. They were all recorded remotely during lockdown, and we offer them from our kitchen tables to yours. Our first episode will be broadcast on February the 18th, and that'll be an interview with former Irish President Dr Mary McAleese. She's just the first of these 12, After her, there's other writers and poets and musicians and political analysts and historians. None of the episodes is longer than an hour. And every episode ends with the guest telling us a very short story from their life. So make sure to listen right to the end. Pull up a chair, listen to us as we listen and talk with us as we talk. The Cory Mila podcast, because we believe that together is better.